With the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act, and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, that means a large amount of investment from both the public and private sector. With much of it going to local infrastructure and manufacturing endeavors, it can be tough for people, especially private citizens, to find out where that money is going. To help, the Center for American Progress has created a new tool to catalog more than 35,000 of these investments. To find out what went into this project, I had the chance to speak with Emily G., who is Senior Vice President for Inclusive Growth at American Progress. There's historic changes going on in America right now in a few different areas that will grow the economy and help grow the middle class. You know, these are changes happening in manufacturing and American competitiveness and investing in workers and in accelerating our transition to a green economy. These were made possible by, by a few really big pieces of legislation that passed in the first couple of years of the Biden administration. And on the ground, these are happening through literally tens of thousands of investments, both with public money and from the private sector to, to revitalize manufacturing and grow the economy. And so we want to catalog what's happening all across America. Got it. And what went into this? What sources did you have to pull from to get both the public and private sector investment information? Uh, where did you all find that? So the the tracker has individual level records, which will give you, say, for example, a battery plant in a certain state and tell you how many jobs it's created. Um, some of this information is readily available through government resources, including build.gov and usaspending.gov. So there's you know, really good infrastructure there for the uh, the federal awards that are being made through um, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the Chips and Science Act, and also the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. Uh, the part, uh, and this is credit to my colleagues here at Center for American Progress, um, the harder part has been uh, scouring news clips and the internet and company press releases to gather all this information about private investment, um, which... Uh, you know, when we started this project, there was no, uh, you know, no central source for. So it's, um, you know, a big research project. We think it's really investment because public investment tells only part of the story of what's happening. These laws have been enabling and crowding in private money from, you know, companies to uh, upskill workers and, uh, and you know, grow our manufacturing base and make more things here at home. And where is there any attempt to take maybe a deeper look at, you know, like you just mentioned, the kinds of jobs that are being that are being created from the, these investments? Um, you know, nothing against the Biden administration, but, uh, you know, sometimes the job numbers can be you know, a little everybody rounds up. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, one thing that we believe here at CAP is that what's important about this economic transformation is not just what we're making or how big it is, but how we're implementing it. The fact that we're making good jobs, that we're using, you know, American-made steel, you know, the domestic content requirements for, you know, renewable energy um, inputs, um, and that, they, you know, we're cre- we need to be creating union jobs that are good-paying and the kind of jobs that you can raise a middle-class family on. So one unique feature of our tracker is that in addition to having those basics like job numbers or dollars or the location is we have an indicator if we have confirmed that the job is, uh, you know, the, you know, the manufacturing plant or construction project is union. Um, and we also have, uh, you know, are trying to connect these, uh, sort of abstract records to what it really means for people. And so you'll, if you pull up, you know, any given record, you'll see links to news clips and, uh, you know, other information, um, from local press about what these investments will mean for their community. 
Yeah, and one of the categories is you can narrow it down to congressional district. Uh, I, I I foresee that maybe you all are are are, are seeing the uh, writing on the wall for the twenty twenty four upcoming elections. <laughs> oh, I think we're already seeing it. You we've we've got uh, it, you know these projects are going in all over America, every state. You know, doesn't matter red states, blue states, and there you can pull up a district and see what's happening. And, you know, we are seeing members of Congress who voted against some of these bills coming out and cheering these projects as shovels go into the ground because they know that this is job creation and this is, you know, economic revitalization of cities and towns across America. Emily G is Senior Vice President of Inclusive Growth at the Center for American Progress. And so who are the intended users of this? Obviously, you'd probably like to see some more political involvement from voters themselves. But is there a business aspect to this? You know, could folks, you know, maybe see where investment dollars are going in certain areas or in certain industries? The tool is public. So anybody can go to our our, our website, American Progress org and uh, you know check out the tracker you, you know, search by all sorts of things keyword program location so our I you know it's, again it's, it's anybody but I think our you know some of our main the main targets that we had in mind were members of the press you know whether you're a national reporter you know a local podcaster um, you know a regional newspaper you can go there and pull up what's happening in your community or your region, just get a bigger picture of, you know, across things like water and construction and semiconductors, what the result of this economic agenda is doing. Another audience is community groups who might want to know what's happening, including, you know, can they, uh, where opportunities to put pressure on government at any level or private sector entities to make sure that we're doing this in a way that's pro-worker, that's pro-environment, and that has, you know, has, I think will have the maximum benefit for community, whether that's sort of building pedestrian-friendly roads or, you know, prioritizing high-need areas with cleaner water or cleaner air. Um, and then lastly, you know, we do hope the policymakers will use it too to find out how other mayors or other governors might be, uh, might, might be using their money through the infrastructure bill, say. And I think, you know, I think it will also enable say, members of Congress and their staff and, and uh, elected leaders to pull up what's happening in their, their district or their state to to see what's changing and, and uh, what's happening, where things are in the process. What can you tell me about the team that was involved in putting this together? Who were they and how many people were there? And are, are there people watching it to keep it updated and, you know, as more investment money comes in? This was a huge team effort um, with so much talent across across our organization, we are a multi-issue think tank and we, you know, covering policy issues spanning from environment and the economy and infrastructure to, but also, you know, people who have expertise in communications and digital media. And so this, you know, this is a project that uh, embodies all the talent that we have across our organization. Um, I, I will say, I'll give a special shout out to my colleague, uh, Will Ragland, who spearheaded this um, and, you know, made sure that we were vetting projects for, you know, for whether they are union or not, um, for making sure that uh, it pulls up the information you want and anticipating how this could be useful to others and anticipating, you know, jobs and making sure that uh, we had the information that was most useful to people. 
Where does the amount of investment dollars stand in the uh, I don't know how necessarily how long you all have been looking at this, but, you know, from a historical standpoint, are, are we at a, you know, coming out of the pandemic? Obviously, some money was going to be needed to get people back working and the economy grinding again. Where does this time period stand uh, as compared to other periods? So this is truly of historic proportions. I mean, the, I think the public money alone is over over a trillion, but that doesn't count the the changes in the nature of what we're producing or how we're doing it and the money that's been dedicated by the by the private sector. I mean one one example that sticks out because we wrote about it recently is in Michigan, you know, Ford announced uh, a 3.5 billion commitment to build a battery park in Marshall, Michigan that will provide batteries for uh the next generation of electric vehicles. To give you an idea of the scale, it's it's just 60,000 uh and counting records that we have in our tracker across public and private and that's Increasing on a, on a regular basis. This is altogether, this investment agenda represents a industrial strategy on the scale and scope of the interstate highway system that went up in the, in the, last, in the middle of the last century. You know, like I said, literally tens of thousands of things that are captured in this tracker. And I'm, you know, particularly proud of the, the effort that my colleagues are making to uh, catalog not just public, but also private investments. But, you know, these are, Large, you know, for the most part, large scale projects on the order of millions or billions, you know, with money flowing through state, state and local, you know, things like airports, you know, private companies. But it, this investment agenda isn't just about sort of industrial million dollar level investments. It's also about lowering costs for families. And if you look at what's contained in these three laws, it's also incentivizing pharmaceutical companies to stop hiking prices so that people can better, seniors can better afford their drugs. It's also about, you know, incentivizing, um, you know, companies that want tax credits to the Chips and Science Bill to improve childcare uh, access in their communities. So uh, there is a lot that is happening, uh, you know, for, for everyday people and middle class Americans. Emily G. is Senior Vice President for Inclusive Growth at the Center for American Progress. You can find this interview along with a link to the online tool at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. 
And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. 
you know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me... Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today. It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how 
to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett, and really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.